0: So our next segment is going to be a a sort of a a special, just as the Star Trek segment was sort of a special thing associated with the Mythgard Academy, a sort of Mythgard Academy style uh, uh, single session. This next one is uh, uh, sponsored by the Signum Academy. And if you've never heard of the Signum Academy, that's not a surprise, uh, because it's one of our newer things that I'm going to be talking to you about at 9 o'clock tonight. Um, but the Signum Academy is basically the branch of Signum University that is focus- that is focusing on and will increasingly be focusing on uh, reaching out to the K-10 through crowd, uh, reaching out to, uh, to, to kids from elementary school up through high school and giving, providing more opportunities for them uh, to, uh, to, to connect and to be part of our community as well. Um, so in sort of celebration of, you know, this one of the newest uh, undertakings of Signum University, I want to, uh, I, I want to, to um, I, I want to join, to have uh, Maggie join me. Uh, let's see, Maggie, I see I'm going to shift you over here, Let's hope that this works out smoothly. Um, so, there we are. I hear you there, Maggie. Very good. Your mic is on. And now you can, if you hit the little webcam button on the side of the control panel there... I imagine... imagine there we go. Hi, Maggie! How are you? Good. How have you been? I haven't seen you in a year. Good. <laughs> That's good. That's good. So I was, I was privileged uh, to meet Maggie down where she lives in West Virginia. Uh, we, we did a, we did a fellowship of the ring camp last year. Now you guys did the two towers this year. Yeah. What were some of the stuff that did was the two towers camp awesome. I was sorry. I missed the two towers camp this year. Was it cool? Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. <laughs> what did you do at the two towers camp?
1: Well, uh, we went to a different place. To, it was yeah.
0: better. A different place that was better, right? I, they, they had this amazing outdoor uh, thing set up. This whole like wilderness with paths and uh, uh, and adventures and quests and things that they were going on last year in the Fellowship of the Ring camp. It was really cool. So you had a totally different terrain uh, this year. Yeah. Neat, neat. That's cool. So, I. Uh, I, you know, I know that uh, I hear that you've been, um, you know, storing up some questions for me, and I'm always interested to hear your questions. I remember that uh, that day when you caught me on the sidewalk with your with your bunch of papers covered with questions. Uh, so uh, I'm 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 I can't wait to hear what you want to talk about today. So what are your what are some of your questions?
1: Um, should I just begin?
0: Absolutely, let's do this.
1: Okay. So uh, this one has been bothering me, so I'm just going to start with it. Okay. So the inscription on the doors of Moria says the doors of Doran, Lord of Moria. Yes. However, at least it was my understanding that the Moria meant the Black Pit and was the name given to Kazadu after the Balrog was awakened. So I didn't understand why Moria instead of Kazadu was on the doors.
0: Dang, that is a great question. <laughs> okay. Right. The dwarves would have called it Khazad-dum. Now, of course, the inscription was made by elves, right? So the dwarvish name, we wouldn't have expected Khazad-dum, the dwarvish name, to be on the arch, right? Uh, Because it was carved by, uh, in, in fact, it says that Celebrimbor of Holland made the signs, right? So Celebrimbor puts the stuff on the door. So we would expect it to be in the Elvish language, The implication is that they called it that Dern. Yeah, why Moria? Why the Black Pit? Yeah. So the people who are here watching are sort of teasing me that uh, that you started me off with a hard question that I can't even answer. That's a really awesome observation, Maggie. So there are the clearest explanation right would be that Celebrimbor called it the black pit before the balrog came right um the way that Kelborn and Galadriel talk about it make and there is there is another elvish name that they use to dis, to to uh, uh, to describe khazad doom um but moria is the later one so here here's uh Here's my theory. Celebrimbor was friends with the, dwar- with the dwarves and the elves of Holland were in, had a, they had a closer friendship with the dwarves than most of the other elves did. But do you think, do you think he was teasing them? Do you think he was making fun of them? Because <laughs> he was carving on the doors a not- very, yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, that it's kind of a, a dig at them, right? That he's sort of like, I'm calling your home the Black Pit and hoping you don't notice or something because I'm carving it in Elvish. And that that name caught on afterwards, like after the whole Balrog incident, then, you know, the, the name kind of catches on later on. But, um, Goodness, Maggie, I never thought of that in my life. <laughs> I never know. I, I don't know how many times I have read that passage, and I never ask that question. Um, I mean, we know, as uh, JJ, another one of our listeners, is, is pointing out, we do know that elves like to tease dwarves. We see them doing it, right? Even as lightly as when the, the elves in The Hobbit, you know, tease Thorin about his beard and stuff like that, it would seem a little harsh, <laughs> right, for him to actually carve it on the door. Like, a, you know, so welcome to the Black Pit, right? That's what I like to call it anyway. Uh, you'd think that at least there would be some dwarves who would notice that and who would draw that to you. To, hey, wait, wait a second. What are you calling a Black Pit, right? In fact, it even reminds me of what Thorin says in The Hobbit, right? When, uh, when, uh, when when Bilbo calls uh, calls Erebor a darksome hole, right? And Thorin's like, don't call my palace a darksome hole, right? Uh, <laughs> you've got to think that somebody would have noticed that, but, um... Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd have to... So he, he, here's a challenge. Now, I'll, I'll issue this challenge, because I don't have time to, to look at it right now, since I'm talking with you. But while we're talking... Um, other people who are listening. Look at the runes. Somebody who knows the runes, look at the runes, and do, cause, cause here's the other possibility, Maggie. The other possibility is that it's Gandalf's translation, right? When Gandalf is translating it, he says Durin, Lord of Moria, um, when it actually didn't say Moria, but he's, he says Moria because that's how everyone whom he's talking to, all the rest of the fellowship, would think of it. Um, so the question, does it actually say Moria in the Elvish runes on the door? And I don't know, off the top of my head, we'd have to, uh, we'd have to, we'd have to look at that. Um, so one of you good people who's watching here today, look it up. If you know, if, if, if you know your Elvish runes, look it up and tell me, does it actually say the word Moria, uh, over the gate or does it, uh, or does it say something else in its Gandalf's interpretation? Um, now another theory that uh, that one of our other listeners is suggesting, Maggie, is that maybe the sort of the connotations of Moria, meaning black pit, kind of change after the fact. But I don't know. I'm not too convinced because more we know more means black, right? I mean, more in Moria means the same thing as more in Mordor, right? It means it means black. So I don't really know. But um, but anyway, yeah. So so if you guys. Uh, look this up and tell you, it does say Moria, Lyra you you're looking at that? It, it does, so it, it the, 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 the Elvish actually says Moria. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Kate is wondering, does, was it called the Black Pit before Durin moved in? You know, is that like an old, an old name for it? But I can't think that even the Elves had a name for that before Durin moved in, because Durin, you know, Durin the First moved in a heck of a long time ago. Um, yeah, no, several people are saying, Maggie, the Elvish actually says Moria. So that is completely fascinating. I have uh Wow, well, okay. Very good. So you have uh uh you have not only stumped me on your first question, Maggie, but it seems that you have actually caught an inconsistency in Tolkien's own writing. So there you go. Uh, I think that you, you 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 seem to have thought of something that even Tolkien hadn't thought of. <laughs> Is really the best explanation that I can think of for that. We could make one up uh, within within the the world, but yeah, it's um uh that's pretty wow. That's a pretty good first question, Maggie. I got to tell you, that's a pretty good first question. Um, what's your second question for crying out loud? <laughs> well,
1: that one was my favorite. That oh, was your favorite so, question.
0: That's good. Yeah.
1: Um. So I never understood how the wizard's staff was. Mm-hmm. like how how power is in the staff itself?
0: Yes. Yeah. And, go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead.
1: Uh, so when Gandalf breaks his staff in Morium, he can still fight the Balrog. Yeah. So um if uh so after uh, so I, this is kind of a joint question. Right. So after he fights the Balrog, like how does he fight the Balrog because he can't fight it with a staff?
0: Right. Right.
1: So, does he fight it with the ring, or, like, with his ring, or, like, how? So, good questions.
0: Yeah, okay. All right. So, the staff itself, um, he, he breaks his staff deliberately on the bridge, right? And that's when the bridge breaks. So, there seems to be, and th- oh, we were just looking at this um, in the, um, have you read... Uh, Have you read The Treason of Isengard? Have you read The History of the War of the Ring*? Okay. So we were just studying this uh, in the Mythgard Academy class that I'm doing right now. And so we were looking just a few weeks back at the first drafts of that chapter that he wrote. You know, so when he first started writing that. And the really cool thing, we were thinking about the staff when we were reading it. uh, Because guess when his staff breaks first? Ganolf broke his staff in the same way, but he breaks it at the chamber of Mizarbal when he brings down the ceiling, right? And Because, like, first, Ganolf doesn't hold the door because the Balrog's not even there. He doesn't hold the door. It's just, like, the orcs are coming through and he's trying to figure out how to stop them coming in. So he just, like, blows up the chamber and brings the ceiling down on purpose so that they can't follow them that way. And he breaks his staff doing it. And so that's the first sense we get of, like, he's... Somehow there there seems to be some kind of power stored in his staff, so that when he breaks it, it like goes boom, essentially. And he can he can either make the room go boom, or he can make the bridge go boom. And eventually, Tolkien decides no, let's save it for the bridge, right? So let's 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 not have him uh, blow up his staff in the do in the room. Let's have him blow us blow up his staff on the bridge. Um, now. But clearly, right, if we think of the staff only as something which stores, like, a lot of energy and explodes when you break it, like, it's—that's it's, not really, obviously, a great way of thinking about the wizard staff, right? Um, because, obviously, there's more symbolic— there's more symbolism to it than that. Think of Saruman's staff when it breaks, right? When Gandalf says, Saruman, your staff is broken and his staff breaks. Notice it doesn't blow up when, he, <laughs> when it breaks, right? Uh, so it's clearly not just a, these staffs are explosive, so watch out how you handle them. Rather, um, there's that symbolic element. So in, in some sense, the power and the authority of Saruman is broken when Gandalf like decrees, like, you're done, Saruman, it's over, I'm breaking your staff. Um Therefore, when Gandalf breaks his staff, it's not only this is the means by which I put out this burst of power and make this thing explode. It's not just that. Um, That's an act of self-sacrifice, right? His breaking his staff on the stone anticipates the death that he's eventually—well, I say eventually— He's going to die soon, but it takes a while, right? There's the falling and the climbing and the fighting and then the dying afterwards, so he still has some stuff to accomplish before he gets to the dying part, but yet he's already anticipating the dying, right? Uh, uh, By breaking his own staff. Um, There seems to be... There's a sense in which um, Gandalf seems to be able to sort of... Think of how tired he is Right after he has that kind of tug of war—not tug of war—it's like a push of war instead of a tug of war. Right with the Balrog at the door, um, I, he comes in. And he's like, you know, he—the he, word that he uses is "spent." I am spent. Right, like I was full of power and now I'm out of power. Right, I've—I've I've, like Gandalf's Gandalf's power meter is low at that point. In other words, there seems to be a way in which the magic that he does is not just. Is not just um, the. Uh, it's not just like a trick that he performs or something that he makes happen. It's, uh, it's, it's part of his own will. It's part of his own strength that is going out. And that seems to be what's expelled when he breaks his staff. Um, and so part of him is going out in this destructive and explosive way. Just as that part of Saruman is kind of cut off, right? When Saruman's staff is broken, he's not able to use his power in the same way. All he has left is his voice which is apparently different in some way, though it's never really explained. Now, how does he fight the Balrog afterwards? So, he probably had his sword still, because he still has his sword afterwards, right? You know, his sword is not lost, because when he comes back from the dead, he's given a sword. Now, like, did somebody fetch his sword for him? I don't know, but he still has his sword in his hand when he falls. So, it seems possible, that he still has his sword and could fight the Balrog with his sword. Um, it says that he uses fire. It doesn't say what his ring is for, you know? Like, could he use the ring? Now, when he talks to the Balrog, he suggests that the ring is involved, right? You know, he says to the Balrog, I am the um, the wielder of the flame of, of honor, which, is, which, which would be his ring, presumably, the ring of fire. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's a threat, you know, like Back off, buddy, or I'm gonna unleash the ring of fire on you, and that's what he does, you know, up on the mountaintop. Um, but remember, there's another kind of parallel that we have, right? This is the second time we have Gandalf up on a mountaintop fighting a bad guy by himself with fire, right? Just like with the with the ring wraiths at Weathertop. Um, except this is a little bit more conclusive than his fight <laughs> with the ring wraiths at Weathertop. Um, so... I mean, it seems to me a uh, uh, a combination of this, of, of those, you know, probably he has his sword and could physically use his sword, but that I don't think is the really important thing. It's not like, you know, the Balrog you can easily kill if you just stab him in the right place. You know, if you get... Like, somebody who is an even better swordsman than Gandalf would have had an even easier time fighting the Balrog. That's clearly not exactly how it works. Um, But, um, yeah, uh, uh, Tongo, one of our listeners here, uh, says that the ring rekindles hearts. That's the way that Círdan talks about it, right? The Ring of Fire. Um, He brings hope to people. And so I wonder if there's, you know, not... Not that he's using the ring in the sense of like, and now I shall use my ring to cast a fireball at you and burn you to pieces, right? Which would be a strange way to try to kill a Balrog anyway, right? Um, But, um, and another one of our uh, 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 listeners who goes by the awesome name of Dolorous Stroke, remind me to talk to you about that later, uh, says swords are of, remember, he says to the others, swords are no more use here, right? Suggesting, again, this isn't just an enemy that you can, that you can stab. Um, so I think he may still have a sword. He probably still has his sword, but again, that's probably not it either. He says he cast him down, right? Um, so like he chucked him off the mountain because almost all Balrogs die by plummeting to their deaths, right? That's, that's the tried and true method of killing a Balrog. Um, but again, it's clearly not just about that either. Like I guess if somebody tripped the Balrog and he fell, then he would have died too. It's, it's the thing that we get is um, that they, um, they have this conflict of wills, right? It's it's magic, it's more like the singing competitions that people, that we see people have, like Sauron in, in the Silmarillion, right, against uh, against Finrod. Um, I'm guessing that the conflict between Gandalf and the Balrog up on the mountain was more like that than it was like throwing fireballs or stabbing him with his sword, but great, great questions. Uh, great. Okay, excellent. What's your next question? Okay,
1: um, Okay. So, Gandalf admits that Saruman was the greatest of his order. However, in the Silmarillion, it says that um, uh, the wisest of the Maya was Mm Olorin. So, does Olorin mean here Gandalf, and how does that work in? Were uh, were they written at very different times, or, like, how did
0: that work? Yes. (laughs) Were they written at different times? Yes. Um, So... Boy, Maggie, you're bringing the stumpers tonight. So, all right, okay, hang on. So, when Gandalf says, "You are the he that he that he is the chief of his order," um, that is written at a different. T- the Aloran stuff was written much later. All that stuff comes much later uh, than pretty much anything Gandalf says in the the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, so. To some extent, one of the things that you can see, Tolkien—you've read Unfinished Tales, right? So you remember in the in the story of the—which, of course, were one of the—well, no, it's in the Silmarillion that says Aloran was the wisest of the Maya, right, in the in the Valaquenta? Um, well, as you'll remember in Unfinished Tales, Tolkien does a lot in the essay on the Astari to, like, make Gandalf's— roll bigger, or not make him more important, you know? Um, like how he says that Gandalf is the only one of the Astari who succeeded, right? All the rest of them failed in some sense, which seems a little hard on poor Radagast, who kind of, you know, seems like he was doing his job, but, you know, anyway, um, it always seems a little, a little, a little hard on, um, on Radagast. And he sort of explains, Tolkien kind of explains it a little bit about how, uh, Saruman could be the chief of his order, um, But anyway, so the the Aloran stuff was from the time when he was, um, in in the later parts of his life, after he wrote The Lord of the Rings, a lot of the stuff that Tolkien wrote, one of the two trends that you can see a lot of is that he loves Galadriel and he loves uh, Gandalf, right? So the stuff that he writes about, he kind of... Their stories get bigger and bigger as he as he goes on. Um, the way that he describes it in that later period, the reason that Gandalf calls Saruman the greatest of his order is not because Saruman is actually more powerful than Gandalf, but because Gandalf is more humble, right? Saruman is prouder, so he like wants to be in charge, right? He wants to get credit for being the greatest. And Gandalf is like, it's it's fine. You just do your thing, right? I will No, you're the boss. I insist, right? It's fine. Um so he is in fact it's one of the ways one of the ways you can tell that he's wisest is that he doesn't want to be in charge, right? Any of the people who come in, they're like, hey, can I be the boss? I want to be the boss, right? That's a pretty bad sign, right? You got to, you know, those people have a wisdom problem, right, if they're if if they, if they like that. So, in a sense, Gandalf's willingness to only be uh, second in command or whatever, not even second or whatever, to be lower than Saruman in any case, is... Uh, uh, Becomes a sign of Gandalf's humility and therefore also of his wisdom. So it doesn't contradict that statement in a sense. It almost proves it right. Um, uh, it's um, in the I think of this is in Christopher Tolkien's commentary in the Unfinished Tales. He says that, you know, one of the things that Gandalf might have been talking about when he said that he was the greatest of his order is that there might have been some way. It's all kind of vague, actually, in which Saruman outranked him. Like, he was... It's not about being more powerful, but that he was, like, more important in some kind of official capacity. In the hierarchy of Valinor, Saruman ranked higher, but that doesn't actually mean that he was more powerful. And so Gandalf defers to him. I don't really... uh, um, I'm not really sure about that. But, um, you know, that's... um, That's the best... Answer that I have for that. It's. I mean, you have, to, you have to put a whole bunch of things together because th- those are, as you were, as you were saying, those do come from very different parts of, 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 of Tolkien's writing and of his life. So yeah, yeah. Awesome question. Awesome question. I know you. You guys are have a have a busy day here that you're squeezing me into, which I'm really grateful for. So I'm I'm watching the clock to make sure I don't keep you much past your your scheduled time. But we still have time for for another question or two. Okay.
1: So um in the in the uh, story of the downfall of Númenor in the Silmarillion it says that um, Sauron took up again his ring in barad so um I didn't understand I I've, I don't think I've ever understood what does the ring do to Sauron mm-hmm. and how is he able like wouldn't it would it stay in Barad-dûr or would it wouldn't it try to get back to its master and right. I just I've never understood
0: No, it it didn't do that because before he left, he had a very stern talk with it, and he told it to sit, stay, good ring, stay ring. And so it stayed and obeyed him. Um, Yeah, okay, so what does the ring do to Sauron? Um, The purpose of the ring is to enable him to dominate the other rings of power, right? So it's about its connection with the other rings of power specifically. Um, It... When you think about how the ring is talked about, or rather, not not about how the ring is talked about, but how Sauron getting the ring is talked about, right? Um, it says that uh, you know they say several in several places they suggest if Sauron gets the ring back there in the you know at the end of the third age, everybody it's all over, right? No one is going to possibly be able to defeat him, and it seems like well, isn't that more than just the other rings of because I mean yeah they're the three Elvish rings out there, right? But if the only power of the one ring that Sauron gets is his ability to see into the minds of the three who are wielding the Elvish rings and to overcome them and to dominate them. What does that have to do with, for instance, attacking Gondor, right? Why is it going to make it harder uh, for the people of Gondor? Like, Why would the people of Gondor have less hope of defending themselves against him if he can dominate the mind of Galadriel, right? So, so I, you know, in that way, that that's a really good question. But the thing to keep in mind is it's not just like what he's going to use the ring for or what the purpose of the ring was in order to make the ring strong enough so that it could dominate the other rings of power Sauron had to put his own strength into it right his own will to dominate others so when he made the ring it's you know the the, the book says that uh, you know much of his own power that was native to him passed into the ring so when he loses it when it goes away and he so when he is stripped of the, when the ring is taken from him, a lot of his power goes away, so he's weaker. That's why Gondor is going to be in trouble if he gets his ring back. Not because he's going to use the ring against them exactly, but because he will have all of his strength and he's going to be much, much harder for them to defeat. And so, therefore, that's why if he gets the ring back, there's nobody strong enough anymore in the third age to be able to stand against him. In fact, the only there are only a few people who could hope. To stand against him, and guess who they are—the people with the Elven rings—and and he's going to be able to dominate them with the Ring of Power. So that's why um, his getting the Ring back would be a, a complete disaster. So why isn't he weakened in the same way when he sets his Ring aside to go to Numenor? Right. Now it's a good thing for him that he did set his Ring aside, or else his Ring would have fallen into the abyss with Numenor, right, which would have been inconvenient for him later on. So he leaves his Ring behind at. Barad-dûr. Um, and I think he must have locked it into a very, very secure safe at Barad-dûr, right, if he was going to leave that behind. Um, the I don't think that Sauron, even though he's not wearing the ring on his hand, I don't think it's quite as physical as that, you know? Like, uh, I can't imagine Sauron having a ring on his finger, right, and being like, now I'm strong. Now I'm weak. Now I'm strong. Now I'm weak, right? I don't think it, it kind of works like, as, you know, if, if it's around his finger. Um, there's a difference between him saying, I'm going to take my ring off and put it right over here, right? There's a difference between that and Isildur knocking him down, standing on his neck and cutting the ring off of his hand, right? Then th- this his power is being taken from him by Isildur, and his power is lost. So I don't think that Sauron is really lessened when he goes to Numenor. Um, he, he probably couldn't use his ring. He's not wearing it, and that cl- clearly wearing it does matter. Um, but I don't think that it's um, it's—I I don't think he's weakened, and I don't think the ring is trying to get out and trying to get home. Again, that's because it, it's trying to reunite with Sauron, and again, I don't think—I think the ring is— able to cope when, you know, when Sauron just kind of leaves it behind for a little while. Um, exactly. JJ, uh, JJ points out, one of our listeners points out that Isildur claimed the ring as a guild, right? When he took the ring, um, you know, he says, no, this I will keep as guild for my father and my brother. Right. So when he claims the ring, he now owns it. And so that power is now available in, in, in some form is now available to him though. Not that he exactly wants that yet. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I do think that there's a big difference between the ring being out of Sauron's possession, you know, like with Gollum and the hobbits versus when it was out of his possession. Well, when it was off his hand, but not really out of his possession uh, in the second age at Numenor. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Great question. Great question. I think wait, Time for one more, maybe. And then I'll and then I'll I'll let you go.
1: Okay, so, um, uh, in, also on the line, it says that, um, uh, they, um, the the nine rings, uh, uh, when they, um, uh, the only, um, the, uh, the people wearing them are invisible, yes. except to the person who wore the ruling ring. Right. So, um, uh, talking about, uh, so since I, we're talking about this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, so, um how if, if Sauron takes the ring from his hand, can he still see them?
0: Because... Right, right, right. Does this work in the same way as, uh, as the, yeah. Um, I'm going to say yes. And by the way, I'm not even sure if that only the one wielding the ring can see them thing necessarily applies to Sauron, right? Because uh, th- think about what is being invisible with the ring mean? Right. Or like, you know, what is invisibility? It's not just, it's not like some kind of optical illusion, right? Like I'm there, but you can't see me because the ring magically makes like the light bend around me so that you can't see me when I'm there. Um, Tolkien thinks about what invisibility actually means. Especially, we see that in, in you know, at the end of Book One, beginning of Book Two, of, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Right when Frodo is fading, when he's going into the wraith world with his wound, and and he sees them even when he's not wearing the ring at the Ford. Right, and he sees Gorfindel, Right, Gorfindel exists in both in both you know both places because he's one of the Calaquendi, because he's one of the Elves from Valinor. Um, therefore, clearly, people who uh, Exist in both worlds, both sort of this spirit world and the physical world can see um, the uh, the ring wraiths. I, it's I, I think it's I would guess. Gorfindel can see them, right? Sauron lives in the spirit world. He's he's that's like his native home, right? He he manifests a physical body, but he's he's from the spirit world. So I think that he could clearly see them whether he's wearing the ring or not. It's only people like. Frodo and Bilbo, right? Or Gollum, who would be in it? Because normally they can't see that spirit world, but they can when they're wearing the ring because they're in it, right? That's why they're invisible, because they're taken at least partially uh, into the uh, into that, that wraith world, that spirit world uh, as well. So... Um, whereas again, you can see that's the big bad sign, right? When Frodo is going towards Rivendell that he's, uh, he's starting to fade. He's starting to slip over into the Wraith world and cause he can see them even, even when he's not wearing the ring. So yeah. Awesome. Maggie, you asked the best questions. Like, yeah, I can't believe you stumped me and Tolkien with your first question. That was amazing. Um, uh, thank you so much. So good to talk to you again. I hope to, to see you again sometime. It'd be great to be able to make it down there to West Virginia again and hang out with you guys. Uh, and in any case, I hope sometime again, you'll come back and, uh, and talk with me again and, and, uh, and, and bring some more of your awesome questions. One of these days, uh, Maggie, when we talk together, I'm going to bring a bunch of questions to ask you because that's clearly that's clearly what I need to be doing here. So uh, uh, thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, Maggie. uh, And I will see you again soon. Bye.